Welcome to the third episode of Battle Rhythm, a podcast of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. On this week's podcast, we're going to start by thanking our funder, since we can now talk about it in the aftermath of last week's announcement. We will then do our usual thing of talking about the trips that we've been on since, since Stephanie was in Europe and I was in the Mideast, which will ultimately lead to a discussion about NATO since the Secretary General of NATO visited the Prime Minister of Canada last week. And then we will answer some questions that listeners sent us. And then we will go to our Emerging Scholar segment with Sarah Greco. Our long interview with Vissara Moller, who will also be speaking about NATO this week. And the podcast will conclude, of course, with another Steve's Peeve. Hey, Steph, we can actually talk about who's funding this podcast. Oh, it's the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, SHRC for short. That's right. SHRC gave us the money in late March, uh, or at least they let us know that we were getting the money in late March, but we couldn't talk about who was funding this effort until this past week when the minister came out and announced all of the funding decisions. So now we can give credit to and give thanks to Shirk. So that was big news of the past week. Yeah, and we've been hoping for this for what, three, four years now? Oh, I think it's been longer than that, actually. I think I've been working on this since uh, 2013, and I brought you on board pretty early in the process. But it's been a long time coming, so I really am very thankful to everybody uh, who gave us support. The leadership team, which includes you and a bunch of scholars across Canada, the folks back at Carleton, and all of our partners in Canada and around the world. It's been a lot of effort, and the joy of it is now that we actually get to do all the stuff that we promised Shirk that we're going to do. Well, your leadership was really excellent during the uh, planning process for this, and now we'll see how you'll do in the next seven years. No pressure. No pressure at all. Uh, the key is relying on really good people like yourself. One of the strangest parts about this experience was we had this 20-minute interview where this teleconference would start. We got three questions, and then we had 20 minutes to answer those questions right there and then. And you and Carolyn LePrince were super terrific about responding to that, taking time out of your schedule to plan for it, and then giving the answers that, that caused us to succeed. So I'm, I'm grateful to you. I'm grateful to her. And I'm, I am looking forward to the next seven years, although now I'm now struggling through how to figure out how to set metrics for success, since that's a very important part of all these kinds of funding things is, is what are we going to do with this stuff and what does success look like? Yeah, planning for metrics is uh, never fun, but the whole process that was the most painful is behind us, I think. Yes. Well, everything from now on is much less risky. We have the money. They're probably not going to take it away from us. Probably not. Since we last talked, we've both been traveling. I went to Israel. There's this program called Academic Exchange, which takes academics largely from North America, but we had a stray European and mostly political scientists, but not entirely, to introduce people to Israel, to Palestine, and the issues there. The good news is the food was phenomenal. They fed us too much. I think this is going to be a recurring theme on our podcast, talking about food on our travels. Uh, not enough hummus, surprisingly. <laughs> our, our best uh, hummus falafel pita meal was when six of us separated from the rest of the group and wandered through the old quarter and found an, uh, a nice hole-in-the-wall place. But the purpose of the mission, of the group, of, of the effort, uh, I thought it was going to be information operations, that is, a propaganda effort by friends of Israel to convince us that Israel is always right. And that might be a legacy of, of the Hebrew school training that got as a kid, because that was one of the three lessons from Hebrew school. A, how to speak Hebrew so that you can get through your bar mitzvah. B, uh, the Holocaust. And C, Israel is always right. But that wasn't what the strip was about. We actually got a good exposure to a variety of opinions. I don't think we got the entire spectrum. But we talked to a politician from the Israeli left who was an atheist Zionist. He tried, she tried to make a 
an argument for Zionism from an atheist perspective. We talked to a settler while we were in the West Bank, and that was a pretty disturbing conversation. She was a Californian surfer girl who moved to Israel and now has eight kids and is an advocate for settling in the West Bank, despite denying uh, that she was creating facts on the ground in terms of changing how much can be negotiated. Because now any division of the land, if it goes back into the 1967 maps, would lead something between 100,000 or 4,500 settlers being kicked out of the West Bank. And so they're making it politically impossible for that kind of deal to happen. So a recurring theme on the trip was whether a two-state solution was still viable. And we are all pretty sure from the, those of us who are on the trip are pretty sure that the clock has been ticking on that and we're running out of time. I can't compete with that when it comes to my trip. I went to uh, Holland and to the Joint Forces Command Brunsum to learn the nitty-gritty of the operational planning process. So your recap is a lot more interesting than mine, but as part of the book I'm writing, it's really important to understand every step of NATO's operational planning process from the strategic level down to the tactical level. So I'm doing, I think, a similar kind of um, uh, brushing up pro uh, process than you did for, for your book, where you famously talked about the caveats and went into the nitty gritty of the force generation process. Uh, but it's interesting NATO divides its area of operations and how you have plans that are essentially adopted at the strategic level, but are quite general and vague. And then as you move closer to uh, the mission level, they are refined. And, and for that, you need uh, a joint operational headquarters like JFC Brunson. Yeah, but we, you were telling me that JFC Brunson is not really as, as involved in the Baltic stuff as, as, as in other missions, right? That's right. And, and Brunson doesn't only look after missions, it also looks after military exercises. So that's a big part of what it does, too. But what's interesting about uh, the operational planning process is not owned by NATO per se. It's really owned by NATO nations who have stepped up to take the lead of the four battle groups in the four different countries where enhanced forward presence is being carried out. So the leading nations uh, look after that operational planning process more than NATO does. Mm -hmm. I passed through Brunson when I was doing the Afghanistan uh, research. So are they a little more relaxed, a little less frenetic than they were about you know seven or eight, ten years ago when they were running the Afghanistan operation? Well, I can't tell. They're eight, ten years ago uh, asking them questions then, but they're still looking after Afghanistan uh, in addition to planning a large military exercise. So you remember last year how there was a, a large military exercise uh, run out of Norway. So this year... Uh, it's not JFC Naples planning the exercise, but it's JFC Brinsome. And I think the exercise is called Trident they, Jupiter. They changed it because it was Trident Juncture before. Yeah, well, now that it's a different exercise run out of JFC Brinsome, I think they branded it Jupiter. <laughs> Trident Jupiter. So given that we've been talking about NATO and your, your visit to the NATO regional headquarters, that, that ties into what's going on in Canada. Because the Secretary General, Jen Stolenberg, came through Canada while we were gallivanting in Europe and the Middle East. Uh, what was he doing here? He's there to visit the Prime Minister, first and foremost, to get updates on the missions where Canada has a command role. So that would be uh, in Latvia and in Iraq. The Secretary General also hosted a defense ministerial recently. So, of course, he is reemphasizing some of the key messages from that ministerial, like NATO's renewed commitment to Afghanistan, like progress on various readiness initiatives. 
And of course, famous 2% pledge. I think the NATO Secretary General likes to remind everyone for the fifth consecutive year, NATO allies have been growing their defense spending. And now in 2019, I think eight NATO allies will reach that 2% threshold. And of course, Canada is not part of that group. And Canada has no plans to reach 2%. Secure, strong, secure, and engaged defense review past Canada reaching 1.4, 1.5%, right? That's right. Uh, so there wasn't a lot of praise for Canada. I think that the, the words of the SecGen were that he was okay with Canada's defense spending, but he praised Canada in other ways. For instance, he mentioned that uh, Canada had three women in command roles. So for NATO, uh, that is the recent appointment of uh, General Carignan to the NATO training mission in Iraq. So that's very apropos since we discussed it uh, during the last podcast. Uh, there's also Lieutenant General Christine Whitecross, who's the commandant of the NATO Defense College. Mm -hmm. And there is Commodore Josie Kurtz, who is uh, in command of the standing NATO Maritime Group, too. So that's actually a good uh, all-services kind of deployment, because that, that's one woman from the Air Force, one woman from the Navy, one woman from the Army. Probably accidental, but that's a nice distribution across the branches of the Canadian Armed Forces. And to be fair, the, the Stolenberg also recognized that Canada is leading in the Baltics and leading in Iraq. So it goes to Canada's messaging that has been long been. It's not how much we spend, it's what we're doing. And I think that's not a, a bad message. I don't think it always flies. But given that 2% means that Greece looks really good as an ally, and as I always say, any metric that makes look, Greece look good as an ally is not really that great of a metric. The best way for us to get to 2% actually is just for us to tank our economy, since 2% of GDP means that the smaller your GDP, the bigger your spending looks in comparison. So again, I think this is going to be an ongoing conversation about the different ways to measure things. Yeah. And one of my frustrating things is that people ask us about outcome metrics and output metrics, and NATO is very much focused on input metrics. How much do you spend? But this 2% thing doesn't really tell you whether you're getting any more capability, which is what the real story is. is. Is NATO more capable now than it was five years ago? I think the answer is yes. Uh, and how much of it is deployable? Well, that depends on which country you're talking about. So again, I think NATO needs to start changing the conversation, but it's very hard to do when the only thing that Trump talks about is 2%. I think Stoltenberg has tried to, to do that, to be fair. When you read his uh, speech transcripts, you can always see a reference to the three C's, cash contributions and capabilities, maybe not in that order. Uh, but I think that this is something that Canada has really latched on to really showcasing the nature of the contributions that are being made to NATO and trying to steer the conversation away from that cash component. Well, that makes sense. And it's kind of a contradiction from what we might have expected in 2015 when this government came into power and you thought it would be more and more UN. But really, the story of, of Canadian deployments the past four years has been more NATO than anything else. That's true. Speaking of NATO news, one story that broke last week was a senator from Canada spilled the beans that there are nuclear weapons in Europe. Were you shocked? I was shocked that this made the news because information <laughs> was uh, you know, public knowledge uh, in the nuclear community for a really long time. I think the reason it broke the news is because it, it was a senator who, who said so. Uh, because governments don't like to comment on this publicly. But if you look at academic articles, if you look at reports by think tanks, you can see this reference to the uh, European bases where nuclear weapons are hosted. Indeed. With Turkey being, uh, let's say, one of the more problematic allies the past several years, one of the ongoing discussions has been the 
the plight or the situation of American nuclear weapons based in Unsulark, which is a base in Turkey, that during the coup, for instance, a couple of years ago, people were asking, well, shouldn't the United States take things, these things out? What's going to happen to these in a time of uncertainty? And now that Turkey has been doing things like buying uh, R- Russian anti-aircraft weapons and is becoming a, a less reliable ally, one of the questions has been, should these bombs be taken out of, or these warheads should be taken out of Turkey? So this is not really a secret. It just reminds everybody that it's one of those things where you're not supposed to mention these things at dinner, but somebody does, and everybody goes, oh! <laughs> but it brings up the, the broader question, I think, of NATO's nuclear deterrence policy. And on, on that front, I think that this issue making the news just underscores the point that NATO's deterrence policy hasn't changed much in, in 10 years. And I remember in 2009 or so, there was a lot of talk of possibly removing these tactical nuclear weapons from Europe. And I know Germany and the Netherlands were quite keen on this potential withdrawal being studied a bit deeper in the NATO context. And that eventually led to the 2012 Deterrence and Defense Posture Review adopted on the margins of the Chicago summit. And in that document, you really saw a bid for the status quo with the proviso that if Russia wanted to enter into reciprocal disarmament talks on this particular class of weapons, the tactical or sometimes called non-strategic nuclear weapons, that there could be progress on this front. But of course, after 2014, that door seems quite shut. Yes, I think uh, progress on arms control with the Russians has been dead for quite some time. And now with both the Russians and now the Americans leaving the INF Treaty, I don't see any any chance for the United States to be interested in removing what nuclear weapons it has from Europe. Yeah, I don't know how we always do this. We always end on a somber note. Well, this this is not over yet. We we have the other side of the story that I, I want to talk about, which is the current research project undergoing with uh, Phil Lagasse, one of the co-directors of the CSN, and, and David Arswald, a friend of mine from long ago, is on the role of legislatures and overseeing militaries. And it started by talking to a Canadian member of parliament about Afghanistan. And I was asking him what he knew. And he's like, I don't know. And I'm like, how do you not know? And he's like, well, I don't have a security clearance. And that surprised me because as someone born in the United States, I always thought that people on defense committees had security clearances. And so this story, the other part of the story is having a senator blow a secret, although it's not really a secret. And when you talk to people about whether parliamentarians should have security clearances, one of the questions that often comes up is, can we trust these people to keep these secrets or not? And so, for instance, when I was in South Korea, the basic story was that anytime you tell the defense committee in South Korea a secret, you're probably going to see in the news before you return back to your own office. And that's probably an extreme end of the spectrum. But there was a lot of criticism of this. And, and the strange thing is that in Canada, the senators take defense scrutiny more seriously than the parliamentarians in the House of Commons. So this may raise people's hackles about the possibility of sharing information with politicians. But again, I think this is a minor infraction, given that this qualifies as the same secret as Camp Mirage that mm. during Afghanistan, there was a base in Dubai that all of our stuff went through to support the mission in Afghanistan. And, and people were set, were told not to name Dubai as a location, but you can find that information on Wikipedia. That's right. Yeah, it's all online. I think this is probably not going to move the needle much on whether we should give parliamentarians more information. I think most of the parliamentarians are happy here having less information because that allows them to talk more. But this is one of the differences between Canada and many other countries where there's a little more trust and a little more information going to the parliamentarians. 
and you'll find that out in a bookstore sometime in the next three or five years if Dave and Phil and I ever get our act together. Don't you love our academic publishing timelines? Yes. <laughs> so we've asked people to ask us questions, and so we have two questions that have been asked for this week. The first is by a tenacious Twitter follower, David Buston, who asks, what effect are we having in Latvia and Iraq, given that we just talked about the NATO missions in those places? What are we doing there? What, what impact are we having? Particularly, what impact is Canada having in those places? Well, in Latvia, we have the interesting situation where we have more partners than anybody else because we were late to the party. So we have lots of small units from nine different NATO countries. And so now Canada is seen as a leader in multilateralism or multinationality because we're having to manage having units from not only NATO stalwarts like uh, Italy and Spain, but also new members like Montenegro and Albania. And the effort has been to try to train these troops so they can operate together. What makes this mission different than others is, is now we have units from much smaller units from many different countries. It used to be you'd have a battalion of let's say Spaniards, and you tell the Spaniards to do, do whatever, and they would do it however they wanted to do so because they were a self-contained unit. Now it's one big battalion with all these different folks involved. And so the Canadians have been very good about managing these relationships. And so the other countries, the other framework partners, uh, leaders, that would be uh, Britain, Germany, and the United States have been looking to Canada for advice about how to manage this process because it's, it's not easy. But with all the tales coming out of Latvia is that the Canadians have been doing a real good job on this, as well as not exposing Canada or NATO to any problems because the Russians are always constantly looking for a bad news story to blow up out of proportion. So they have to make up of their own since the Canadians are not creating bad news in Latvia. How about Iraq? In Iraq, uh, Canada took command of the mission last summer, but it took several months before the mission was truly set up and reached operational capability. And I think that Canada was well suited for this particular role because it's a, an experienced military when it comes to these types of tasks. Uh, and you need a military of a certain size to, to set up that kind of mission, but also had credibility with the host nation. So Iraq was very welcoming of Canada having that kind of role, I don't know, compared to, let's say, Turkey. And funny you mentioned establishing relationships in Latvia because I also saw this as very important in the Iraqi context because, again, here you have the provision of advice as one of the main points of the mission. And so uh, having Canada in that role and uh, deploying some of its best people and then bringing that multinational component in, you have a very sort of top-heavy mission out of uh kernels from different countries then trying to establish relationships with Iraqi generals within the Ministry of Defense. So relationships are very important and I think they're especially mm -hmm. uh, important in that first phase of the mission when it's being set up and then the subsequent rotations can then build on those relationships, uh, build on that progress. Setting the solid foundation I think uh, is very important and can be looked to as one of the enduring contributions of Canada's command role in Iraq. For the other, more elusive because you're trying to measure uh, the progress of advice. And I think I alluded to that maybe in one of our previous episodes, but how do you translate advice into uh, tangible actions, mm -hmm. outcomes that you can really see? That you can see maybe over a decade or more, but it's very easy to see 
how that advice is changing practices or uh, improving processes within the Ministry of Defense. Uh, maybe quicker wins are looking at how Canadians and the various contributing nations to this mission are on uh, the whole military education system because mm-hmm. the Navy is working closely with the Iraqi military academies. Uh, and of course, who people do you train is often a metric that is used uh, that's more output driven, but certainly for tactical training, the kind that the NATO mission in Iraq is doing, uh, that you have uh, activities that are a bit easier to measure, but progress on the whole, this is a brand new mission. One of the challenges is that in Afghanistan, for instance, they, the measure often used was this number of troops trained, but that just creates incentives to train lots of people quickly as opposed to training people really well. I do think there are two bits of evidence that suggest that Canada did this stuff well in Afghanistan. One is that Kandahar still hasn't fallen, and so maybe the units that the Canadians trained uh, had a lasting set of uh, qualities that folks elsewhere didn't have. The second is that in Canada's time of training in Afghanistan, they never had one of their soldiers killed by somebody they were training, whereas other countries had that green and blue problem. So I guess those are two kinds of ways to look at that, whether Canada does this stuff well. It's so well, hard to isolate. Yeah, I know. <laughs> what caused what? But yeah, we'll see. All right, we got a, a random question from someone else, which is, Anthony Scaramucci is following me on Twitter. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Following <laughs> me too on Twitter. I don't know what to make of this. It's probably following you too on Twitter. But then so is Tay Diggs. I'm more excited <laughs> following me than the mooch. Well, Tay Diggs is one of these guys who actually just keeps on accumulating followers. I don't think he pays attention to it. But if you take a look at his Twitter account, he has like a million people he follows. But I've actually had interactions with Soledad O'Brien, Henry Winkler, the Fonz, mm. and Morgan Fairchild, who was a, a, a soap opera starlet in the 1980s, but I'll always remember for appearing on Mork and Mindy. Uh, Twitter's a strange place. Well, I guess that concludes our conversation today. We have a couple of interviews coming up. Thanks. Thank you. at the University of Toronto with Sarah Greco. Sarah is a PhD student at Queen's University in the Department of Political Studies. She has just submitted her dissertation to the department, which means her defense is imminent. And we're catching up in Toronto because we are both attending the Women in International Security Canada workshop. Sarah, thanks for joining Battle Rhythm. Thank you for having me today. So why don't you tell us what your research is about? Okay. Basically what I had found in the literature on power transition is that a lot of it was mentioning material triggers and looking at hard power dynamics and how those differences in hard power contributed to not only not only the overall balance of power, but also how um, shifts in the structure um, of the system occurred. And so what I was more curious about is whether there were any soft power mechanisms at play that contributed to power transitions among great power rivals. So that sparked the question that I ask in my PhD dissertation, which is in the absence of war, how do states drive systemic change? And to respond to that question, I come up with a concept that I uh, term normative balancing. And there's three components that are attached to this concept. The first is that states that are in competition, so great power rivals, are going to endorse different norms at different points in time to present alternatives to other secondary states. 
And following from that, I suggest that secondary states balance against uh, one particular rival and align with another vis-a-vis -vis their norms. And then the third component to the argument is that that alignment and balancing is able to increase or decrease a competitor's soft power and that that contributes to the overall balance of power. And I think that it's really important for me to note the idea of normative balancing, the concept and the argument that I'm putting forward isn't an alternative to existing hard power explanations. It seeks to supplement them. So the suggestion is that both hard and soft power matters to the overall balance of power and how power transitions ultimately end up occurring. So the main question I think that comes from that is, so then what is the value added of looking at normative balancing? If we're already able to use these hard power mechanisms to understand power transitions, why also look to soft power mechanisms? And what I found in my research is that there is the benefit of looking at the gradual and nuanced way that soft power increases and decreases. When you're looking at hard power dynamics, it seems as though um, the increases and decreases are uh, heavily concentrated at the end of a power transition. And so if we're looking at soft power dynamics, we're able to really capture and understand the process of a transition a little bit better. You did a lot of empirical research for <clears throat> your dissertation, and I know that one of the main focuses of your empirical study was UN Security Council resolutions. Can you tell us how many of these you read and for what purpose? So I um, perform a content analysis of three of the four resolution outcomes. So a resolution in the Security Council can pass unanimously, it can pass non-unanimously, it can fail by way of a P5 state's veto, or it can simply fail as a result of insufficient support from all council members. So I decided to perform a content analysis of the meeting records and resolutions associated with non-unanimously passed, failed, and vetoed resolutions. And um, I think it's important for me to point out why I decided to omit unanimously passed resolutions. If you look at these um, in the context of the meeting records, there's not very much debate that's actually public. And if you're looking at the other records, the other meeting records, um, there's a very clear back and forth between states. So it seems as though the, um, the normative debates that were being held and carried out and closed door nego negotiations are being carried through into the public sphere. So we're able to um, really appreciate what those dynamics are and what that competition actually looks like. And just for our listeners who might not be aware of the distinction between hard power and soft power, how would you summarize that for our listeners? Sure. Hard power constitutes a country's material wealth, um, so it can refer to its military, its economy. Uh, when a country is using its hard power, it's using coercion or threats um, to get its point across and to achieve a particular policy aim. On the other side of the equation is soft power, and that's the ability to persuade other states. Um, as Nye puts it, it's the ability to get others to want to do what you want them to do. Um, so it's looking at ideas and norms and culture as a way to um, 
like I said, persuade other states into adopting a particular policy stance. I also wanted to ask you how you came to be interested in this topic. The dissertation journey takes a lot of unexpected turns. Can you tell me how you came to study this research question? Um, well, it, it did definitely come from just looking at all of the power transition literature, but uh, to be totally honest, I originally applied to the PhD program looking at nuclear weapons, um, the North Korean nuclear weapon program, and how uh, the United States and China were addressing North Korea's uh, nuclear proliferation. And um, over the course of my time at Queens, I was able to really appreciate the interesting dynamics that go on between uh, competitors, in this case China and the US, and how certain patterns of alignment have larger implications. So um, the starting point is definitely very different uh, from where I've ended, but um, I'm definitely very happy with, with the final um, point that I'm at, and I feel as though there's a lot of uh, areas where I can springboard off of this research, and I hopefully look forward to pursuing that in the future. If you were stuck in an elevator with one of our political leaders or the defense minister or the foreign minister, how would you present your research in 30 seconds or less? I think in the context of Canada, I think it's really important to highlight that um, my research shows the importance and the impact that secondary states can have through soft power mechanisms and it's not necessarily uh, brute force and material wealth that is going to um, help certain countries make a particular impact and tapping into those soft power resources is I think really where Canada can excel and make its mark particularly in the Security Council. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, those arguments are particularly important now uh, as you know the contours of Canada's foreign policy are being increasingly questioned as the elections are coming up uh, freelance speech uh, from you know over a year ago I think is is being a, a faint memory and uh, certainly Trump has has challenged some of those assumptions at every turn but let me ask you about what comes after the defense state have you given it some thought yes so um, I will be defending my dissertation on July 31st that that is imminent, as you mentioned. Um, and like I said, I think that based on the dissertation and the results that I've been able to collect from my content analysis, um, there are some future avenues that I'd like to pursue, hopefully, in a postdoc. Um, for example, looking at the relationship between hard and soft power. So as I mentioned, what we can see is that soft power changes are happening before hard power ones. and um, there's likely an interaction effect and so I'd like to uh, further investigate how those soft power changes based on patterns of alignment and balancing have hard power outcomes as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for being on Battle Rhythm. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I'm Sara Moeller. I'm an assistant professor at the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University in New Jersey. Sarah Moeller, welcome to Battle Rhythm. Uh, we're glad to have you here. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Tell our audience what, what you told us yesterday. 
Sure. Uh, I was on the first panel, uh, which was tasked with dealing with the drivers of change. But since this year's theme was a changing international order, and there was a question mark in the title, I uh, took it upon myself to uh, take the contrarian view, perhaps, and sort of push back against uh, the idea that uh, we are uh, experiencing um, a tectonic shift in the international uh, system. Uh, let me uh, explain what I mean because I want to be careful and, and, and precise. Um, undoubtedly, there are a lot of changes afoot, particularly on the economic side, the economic pillars of the post-war U.S.-led international order or the international system, the liberal international order, whatever we're calling it these days. But uh, I'm not uh, an international political economist. I do international security, as I suspect is the main interest of most, most of your listeners. And uh, for me, uh, as you know, I work on NATO. And I think uh, when we look at the security pillar of the liberal international order, uh, we need to um, be precise and we need to look at uh, what is and ha uh, isn't changing. And particularly, I think this distinction between rhetoric, uh, there is a lot of that, and praxis. And certainly, uh, President Trump um, has a unique rhetoric style, rhetorical style all of his own, uh, and can be quite brazen in some of his tweets and uh, so? <laughs> most of his tweets. I'm trying to be diplomatic, Steve. <laughs> this is battle rhythm. We're not diplomats. We'll I know, but I work at a school of diplomacy, so <laughs> I, I have to take that to heart. But yeah, uh, the message we've heard um, it has been phrased differently under the current administration. But as, as you both know, um, there's an element of continuity there as well. Um, it's being uh, phrased in less polite terms, certainly. Uh, but we can go back to Eisenhower, who uh, also worried about U.S. security uh, investments in Europe and European dependence on uh, U.S. security constructs contributions. And I think uh, where I'm going with this is that uh, on NATO so far, um, it looks like the Trump administration has been all bark, no bite. And as evidence, I look to things like yesterday's uh, announcement by the Pentagon that uh, the U.S. will now, uh, if official, be contributing an extra thousand troops to Poland. Um, so we won't get Fort Trump. Uh, it won't be a permanent base. But this will mean that instead of the 4,000 American soldiers currently in Poland um, as part of enhanced forward presence, uh, we will now have uh, an additional 1,000 troops, I believe, um, who will be perform logistic duties. Uh, another uh, interesting um, development uh, is that the European Defense Initiative budget, formerly known as the European Reassurance Initiative under the Obama administration, has almost doubled since uh, Trump came into office. Uh, from 3.5 billion, I believe, I don't have the figures in front of me, in uh, fiscal year 2017 to uh, uh, 6.5 was the request for last year, and the request for next fiscal year is 5.9. So the metrics are, are showing a different uh, story or telling a different story than the rhetoric. Can I ask you a quick question? Of course. Do you think that Trump knows about these things? Probably not, and I think uh, in the interests of uh, maintaining uh, uh, the alliance and cohesion, uh, we shouldn't draw too much uh, attention to it. But thankfully for us, he doesn't read. Uh, uh, I don't even think he reads other tweets. We should be pretty safe. The last caveat I'll add on this point is 
look, we're, we're two and a half years in, and I think much will depend on what happens in 2020, of course, right? Uh, you do get the sense traveling through Europe that officials are uh, obviously un, un, unhappy with the state of the current transatlantic re- relationship and, and, and alliance policies, but they're biding their time. And there is a sense that they can hang in there for another two years, uh, and I'm confident that's the case. I worry more if Trump is elected, what decisions are, are European allies may take as a response and what conclusions they might draw from a, from a, a second Trump term. Bad around uh, was the idea of worst ally or la- lamest ally or lamest fr- friend. And I, I hesitate, but I, I have to say I'm profoundly disturbed by, by Germany's failure to, to lead on, uh, on security and, and defense. I think they have the capacity and capability anymore. Uh, one of the themes from this conference has been the important domestic politics. And I, I, I understand that, but um, uh, there's certainly room uh, for, for Germany to do more. The other thing is a lot of the countries that uh, meet the 2% threshold met it prior to uh, President Trump. And as I believe, Steve, you're fond of saying, any measure where the Greek, Greeks are ahead, we should be a little bit suspicious of. So I tend to think the 2% threshold debate is overplayed. But it's a nice Twitter feed issue for for the president, and so he'll continue to harp back on it. But I think uh, the larger point stands that the Europeans should be paying more for their uh, defense. And this is the message that they have received from every president since Eisenhower, uh, and uh, they received it from uh, uh, Secretary Gates in his farewell address, gave a pretty forceful and powerful uh statement of uh, what he thought the transatlantic alliance needed to do, and it was precisely this step up. So it's a recurring, that's another recurring theme, I think. We even had Gordon O'Connor, who was a defense minister of Canada for a while, lambaste the European allies because Canada wasn't getting enough help in Afghanistan. So Fair this, point. So this is an, a long-standing issue, mm-hmm. but part of it, but part of it was that O'Connor was really focused on the fighting part of it, that you know, showing up in Afghanistan and being on the battlefield and having fewer restrictions. The challenge with the two percent is it's an input measure, not an output measure, or even more desirable, an outcome measure. So it's not you know what is what are countries doing to actually help stability in Europe, and so you could argue that despite Poland's wayward political issues in terms of becoming more authoritarian. They're stepping up, regardless of what they're spending, they're doing more to help build security in the, the Eastern Front. That the Estonians and all those folks, who's always easy to reach 2% because they give a small GDP, it's not that hard to get to 2%. So they're doing more things. And the challenge with Germany is they really have a procurement and, and readiness problem that's deeper than money. That when I was in Berlin last month, I found out that one of the real reasons why they're so messed up today, that their submarines can't sail, their their, ship, their planes can't fly, is because they had a defense minister who thought it was a good idea to uh, get rid of all the spare parts depots. So when you need a spare part now, it's made to order, which is a, an incredibly bad idea because it takes time. It has to be made from scratch, so it's more expensive. And so they simply don't have the spare parts to put into their planes and into their ships. So it's not, it's not necessarily a, a problem of political will right now. It's that the Bay made fundamentally dumb decisions. Right, it's the result of decades of underspending, though, as well, and, yeah. and, and decisions um, um, that have gone in a different, in a different direction. Right? Mm-hmm. But I think that what you're saying is there is a lot of continuity in America's insistence that the Europeans do more some style. It's different. Delivery is different. Shocking aspect. Absolutely, yes. 
but the one question I push back on is, is the whole idea of NATO is to create certainty. And if you take my argument seriously that Trump is an uncertainty engine, then doesn't that, even though it's a rhetoric versus praxis, at some point we have to worry about the praxis that is tied to the rhetoric. So if there was an Article 5 situation, can the Europeans count on the United States to show up when Donald Trump is president? Right. There is no certainty built into the Atlantic Charter, right? Uh, Article 5, as, as you well know, it only says that once it's invoked, the point you were making this morning, countries will do what they are able to, and that's dependent on domestic politics and other situations. So I think a lot of this um, uncertainty is always going to be there. It was there during the Cold War, right? This is why I, in a piece I wrote uh, in January for the Lawfare blog, argued that no number of troops the U.S. sends to Poland or the Baltic states is going to reassure, right? We've moved the boundary, and it's the same problem that the Germans and the other Europeans, the Western Europeans, worried about in the, in the Cold War, whether America will trade uh, Boston for Berlin, right? Um, and, and, and I think, uh, I worry that uh, we are too quick uh, because we're comfortable with the Cold War. Uh, um, we won that. We think we understood it. We're too quick to fall back into the same playbook. Um, and that may not turn out the same way this time around. I, I, I really appreciate that because we, we do sort of look at the past now with nostalgia. Whatever that past is, like we look back and we miss high school for some reason. I, have no idea. <laughs> I certainly do not. <laughs> um, maybe it's Facebook that does that. Uh, but I. I guess the next question for us is, your book has a great title, your new book uh, you. that you're working on, Fighting Friends. Yes. And so uh, the question is, how is that coming along? And uh, slow and steady. So it's the dissertation, uh, and it had the same title as the dissertation. And this summer uh, is uh, the summer where I'm revising it, finishing, getting it out. Um, I did a very successful uh, workshop at MIT last uh, summer, last September, fall. And uh, I just haven't had a chance during the school year, and I've done a lot of travel. I was at the NATO Defense College, as you know, in the fall. So this summer um, is when I'm um, finishing it up. And, and the motivation for it, what sort of uh, led me to, to choose this dissertation in a now book project, was I suspect similar to, to your own work in that um, despite the forests of trees that have been felled on alliance studies in international relations, there's a striking gap in the literature uh, and I found this uh, particularly frustrating as someone who, who spent the early knots living in Washington, uh, in that IR literature, uh, this is changing, but it used to be uh, the case that it was heavily focused on uh, the causes of alignment when it came to alliances and the consequences of alliances for the onset of war. And so if we say that in international security, we're interested in the causes, conduct, and consequences of war, it seemed to me as a budding uh, international security scholar back in the day that we were missing the middle part of that story, the conduct of alliances in wartime. And again, I know both of you have, have contributed to some of the excellent work that's coming out in, in the last couple of years. And, and, and what I do in the book manuscript is really focus on this middle stage and, and in particular ask the question of what accounts for the variation in the institutional design of these wartime coalitions and alliances, these partnerships. And um, I focus on command and control, and it's a story about uh, failure-driven learning and how uh, for reasons of uh, sovereignty, uh, domestic politics, uh, reputational costs, fear, and incompatib 
multiple strategic objectives, wartime allies tend to start out in the loosest type of configuration uh, possible. And then as, to use a diplomatic term, shit happens, um, uh, they innovate and adapt. And that adaptation always tends to be in one direction towards more integration. Uh, and so typically what you have is by the uh, towards the end of the war, you have more unified command, right? And this is puzzling because if you speak to a military professional, a military historian, it's like, yeah, of course, unified command, right? But then why are we constantly having to relearn this lesson? So it's about wartime learning in coalitions and alliances, and uh, I'm excited to finish that project. And, and I think maybe in the next project, I'd like to look at uh, learning between wars. Just getting back to your Afghanistan case for a quick curiosity. Which is, do you give any attention to the Marines who did their best up and the, the efforts to uh, unify command? A, a little bit. I know you, uh, this is a, a, a pet peeve, a yes. Steve peeve is what we're calling it, of yeah. yours, uh, Marinistan. Um, I, I, I look more, I, I don't look at the services, though I, I did come across some interesting, I'm blanking, of course, on it uh, now that I speak. But yeah, it, it was a problem. And I think the interesting thing is that when you speak to, who was it? Was, it was under Petraeus. Right. Mm -hmm. And without divulging any uh, uh, any state secrets or uh, national uh, secrets, there was uh, from the interviews I've done around Petraeus, there was a sense that uh, he, he dropped the ball on that. And uh, I think there is a recognition uh, of it. Uh, I don't know whether that is, is post hoc. Uh, um, that's the other challenge. I'd love to hear from both of you who do interviews. Right. Um, I was struck when I was uh, interviewing a lot of these folks last year, okay, Afghanistan, we're 18 years in, right? But some of the developments that we're looking at, whether it's uh, NATO taking over ISAF in, in, in 2003 or the establishment of the IJC later on, they're more recent and contemporary. And I was struck by people's memories. They really sucked very bluntly. <laughs> I'm sorry, but... The, you, you know, and I, 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 I'm sympathetic, I guess, in a way, because I've never been in government, and I understand there's a lot coming mm -hmm. across your desk every day. But if you're working AFPAC issues, and NATO AFPAC in particular, then you should have your chronology straight. And uh, so it was quite challenging, you know, as an interviewer to say, well, actually, sir or ma'am, I think you mean such and such. And it happened this year, not that year. Oh, yeah, that's right. And oh, yeah, that story was an anecdote I was just recounting. Forget that, right? So uh, my my approach uh, in writing this Afghanistan chapter has been to try to triangulate. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, um, we don't have the our, our archival record, mm -hmm. um, and I worry. And this is one of the things that came out from uh, my talking to a former vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, who expressed this concern too. Is all of the uh, campaign analysis from that era was on USB drives, and once that's gone, it wasn't stored elsewhere, it's gone. So uh, I worry for future uh, international relations scholars and, and diplomatic historians, military historians, what what documentary record will there be, right? But my approach was to take the excellent research that has been done, the memoirs, um, uh, some of the public reporting, and then the interviews, and try to put together as accurate as, a and come as close to what I think is the, the, the correct story. Sara, you are deceptively a Dane hanging out in the United States. And so one of the interesting things that came across my research is this notion these days that the Danes are one of the most aggressive 
members of NATO, or most assertive members of NATO, that are now being referred to as modern Vikings. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious as to whether, as a, as a Dane, do you feel pride, anxiety? Do you think this is misplaced? Is this delightful? What's your take on the vision of, of the Danes as being uh, the, the folks you can count on in a fight? First, I should caveat my answer by noting that I'm maybe perhaps an unusual Dane. Um, I'm very Americanized, but uh, I, I think most Danes and uh, have a, a great sense of humor. Um, we have something uh, in Denmark called Jentelon, or the Law of Jentes, uh, which is a list of around, I think, 14 principles, but basically they sum up to don't take yourself too seriously and don't think that you are better than anyone else. Mm -hmm. So uh, Danes, my impression would be, would take it as a compliment because we are surprised when anyone um, knows we exist. We are a small country and uh, we recognize that, right? So when Danes travel around in the world and encounter other Danes, they um, develop a warmth and friendliness for each other that they wouldn't uh, at home because we do recognize how small we are. We're a country uh, of five and a half million. Uh, but I think we do punch above our weight uh, in a number of ways. We've chosen... Every NATO member thinks they punch above their weight, yes. except for the United States, which yes. has weight. Fair enough, right? But we, we were in Helmand uh, with the Canadians. We, um, we fought, we lost. Uh, I think uh, it's been a couple of years since I looked at it, but I think at one point uh, Denmark had per capita suffered the highest losses in Afghanistan of any NATO member. Except for Estonia, but again, so, it has to do with their baseline of being such a small country. Fair enough. Um, so I think the, the average Dane would take it as uh, both a compliment and uh, as an example of good-natured ribbing that goes on in NATO, right? This is, uh, we are an alliance of 29 uh, and growing countries, and uh, there is this uh, uh, tendency to revert back to uh, stereotypes, and, and, uh, and I think there can be mostly harmless. Uh, one that came to mind when uh, I saw your question was uh, eating the NATO cafeteria, how the uh, French officer and the Italian uh, officer were having a playful discussion about whose national cuisine was superior. And then the French threw, the officer threw down the gauntlet and said, fine, but with wine, it's no question, right? So we, we some, I think I, I haven't, I, I haven't um, encountered the, the references that, that you alluded to of Danish Vikings, but I don't, uh, I don't think anyone would take it disrespectfully or as, a, as something negative. I think on the contrary, uh, they would be proud um, uh, and and recognize perhaps the good-natured uh, ribbing uh, nature in which it was uh, meant, I hope. <laughs> I will say that I was disappointed that the Danes didn't get to be lined up with the Canadians in Latvia, but I wasn't surprised that the British got them, both because the British worked with the Danes closely in Helmand, but also because the British played the NATO games better than everybody else. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, of course, they they, they 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 drafted first, essentially, and made sure they got the best, uh, most reliable partner for their effort in Estonia. Mm -hmm. Now, on, on the Baltics, I think one thing to, to watch here is um, the new command, the multinational division northeast, which is going to be co-located in Adazia and Kapo, Denmark. Um, and I think that, you know, that the, the Danes have a long um, tradition of being involved in, in, in Baltic security, and, and, and they're one of the framework nations in uh, the multinational court headquarters in Stetson. Um, and so I think um, that they, they are doing a lot there, and, and they will continue to do a lot there. But while we're on the subject of uh, Denmark, uh, 
Steve uh, and Stephanie, I just want to say hands off, Hans Island. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Hans Island for crying out loud. There are plenty of people. I don't know. <laughs> but we need to keep this territorial dispute alive because it's so pleasant and humorous that you know each country puts a bottle of their own booze on the island when it's their turn to make claims. For Replaces it. the flag as well, I think. Of course, right? I'm sure they yes, do that. no, that's that. That we were wrong to expect something better with the end of the Cold War, something along those lines, and it made me think that perhaps the return of interstate competition was inevitable. Yeah, it is my worldview. Uh, you can call me uh, pessimistic, pragmatist, realist. Uh, I, I don't really get too hung up on labels, but I tend to take as a, a longer view of history, right? And we are, and I don't. I think social media has a part to play with this, but I think it's also human nature. We're very focused on our lifespan and lifetime, and I think it, it, it behooves us as practitioners and scholars of international security to sometimes step back and take a longer view of history and recognize uh, how short the period 1989 to 2014, if that's the marker we're using, or 2008, if you prefer, uh, really was, and how different it was from um, what I see as an enduring logic of international relations, which is interstate competition, right? And don't forget, uh, uh, um, when the Cold War ended, it was, I believe, Senator Paul Songus who said, Cold War is over, Japan won, right? Um, so I don't want yeah. Japan won, because this was, goes back to the economic nationalism, and the, we were worried the West, uh, West uh, Germans and Japan in the late 80s, early 90s um, were to blame for the uh, globalization changes underway in American factories, right? And mm -hmm. And... And so just to, to, to recognize, right, there was also on the security front uh, this great euphoria, whether it was the end of history or the democratic peace movement, right, engagement and enlargement, that was going to uh, transform the world. Russia would reform. China, we could welcome them into our ILO, the uh, or LIO, excuse me, the Liberal International Order, uh, welcome them into the WTO. There was as uh, uh, an element of hubris that our our system, our political and economic systems are superior, and the only reason that other countries hadn't adopted them as yet uh, was because they hadn't had the chance, right? So uh, I think what we've seen in, in the interim years is, is uh, no, there are alternative um, systems out there, uh, and without making a normative judgment about which is better or worse, just recognize that that the world is a, is a complex place and ultimately a dangerous place. Sara, I want to thank you for uh, coming to uh, Battle Rhythm. My pleasure. Great to be here. On this week's Steve's Peeves, I want to address uh, an ongoing discussion that's been going on in the United States, in Europe, and the Mideast, and elsewhere. Should we care about Trump's tweets or just his deeds? In last week's podcast, I mentioned this topic because I met Europeans who thought that it was really what was important was the investment of the United States in the European Defense Initiative in building up some troops in Europe and not Trump's statements about NATO. Well, coming back from the Middle East, I cannot help but say that both the tweets and the deeds matter. That moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem might seem like just a symbolic issue, but it surrendered a whole lot of leverage for nothing. I met an Israeli negotiator who marveled at 
this loss of leverage for nothing for the United States. That Israel could have pushed, been pushed pretty hard to make some concessions in exchange for this, but that was unnecessary since Trump gave away this bargaining chip. The Palestinians also noted that Trump had cut USAID funding of projects in Palestine, and he had cut funding for the UN agency responsible for taking care of Palestinian refugees. While a Mideast peace is far, far away, Trump is making any progress much, much harder, while also feeding alienation in the occupied territories. He might just be the best recruiter for Islamist extremism since George Bush's invasion of Iraq. Of course, I started thinking about this before Trump told a bunch of non-white congresswomen to go back to their country. This too might just be seen as words, but inciting violence is quite serious. Studies have shown that in those counties in the United States that have held a Trump rally in 2016, there has been more hate crime afterwards. Words matter. We long for the days that presidential statements were constructed carefully. In my year in the Pentagon in 2001 and 2002, two sets of presidential statements guided policy and all of the documents and all of the talking points. In together, out together. And hasten the day until we leave the Balkans. The first was a reference to allied unity, and the second was a desire to move things quickly so that way everybody could get back home. This might have been contradictory, but it set the parameters for every conversation we had. There's another danger with writing off the president's words, that he makes lots of threats, and they are seen as being empty. But at some point, one of those threats might actually be real, that he might actually fall through on it. The Chinese consider Trump as a paper tiger, that he's a bluffer that you can keep on pushing. Well, what happens when the bluffer is pushed too far? At some point, when, when one thinks that words don't matter, and they actually do, what happens? War can happen. That scholars of international relations have often considered misperception and miscommunication one of the usual sources of war. Trump, because his words are often not taken seriously, including by himself and by his staff, creates uncertainty. I've taken to call Trump an uncertainty engine. And uncertainty is a bad thing for international relations. It can, again, cause war. It can cause crises to become more problematic. It can cause economic crises. NATO itself was created largely to create some certainty about the American commitment to Europe, to foster peace and stability in Europe. Now that's under question. So when folks tell you to pay attention to Trump's deeds and not his words, remember that this is really problematic because words really do matter. And people have been getting hurt by Trump's words since the start of his campaign in 2015. Thank you. We'd like to respond to any questions and comments people have, so please let us know what you're thinking about the podcast or what you'd like for us to discuss or if you have questions about Canadian defense and security by emailing us at cdsn.rcds at outlook.com. That's cdsn.rcds at outlook.com. Or tweeting at us at cdsnrcds. That's at cdsnrcds. Otherwise, you can keep track of what we're doing via our website, which is www.cdsn-rcds.com. That's again, cdsn-rcds.com. Thanks.